before we all get too comfortable, <laughs> would you uh, please stand with me as we go in our time of scripture reading? One day we'll get this down. Usually after the greeting will be scripture reading. So Today's scripture comes from Psalm 22. Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. And you our fathers trusted, they trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and, and were rescued. And you they trusted and were not put to shame. May God bless the reading of his word. Uh, today we welcome uh, Pastor Schlepp, 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 uh to our pulpit. Um, so, Pastor Schlepp. It's sleep, like go to sleep, fall asleep. Now I lay me down to sleep. In fact, even when I'm awake, I'm asleep. <laughs> um, you know, in light of the fact that we all lost an hour last night, which, by the way, somebody recommended that we turn our clocks forward at about 4 p.m. on a Friday afternoon, if we're going to do it anyway, right? Instead of losing sleep, we go home early from work. But... Um, between that and the men's retreat, I was thinking, <clears throat> not everybody knows this, but I always have two goals anytime I preach. And that is that you either arise challenged or awake refreshed. Think about that a minute. Okay. Uh, that usually goes over better. But anyway, um, last time I was here, it was my privilege to preach from Psalm 32 on the blessing of forgiveness. Uh, Pastor David Park preached on Psalm 1 last weekend. I appreciate it. I was listening to it online. Great time in the Word. And this morning we're going to be in Psalms again. So you're going to finally wear off that gold edging on your Bible in the Psalms because you're going to have your finger there. Um, this is David's song about suffering. It is clearly a difficult season that he has just passed through. Um, and this is the song that was most on Jesus' mind when he was on the cross, because he ends up quoting from it. So first we're going to look at how Jesus uses this song, at least the initial line from this song, on the cross. Then we're going to go back and look at Psalm 22 and look at David's own experience. And then we'll come back to Jesus' use of this song on the cross, because I think, especially as we are moving very quickly toward Easter, it's important to understand why, of all the Older Testament he could have quoted from, from the cross, why did he pick this? Was it simply the anguish that he was in, or was there something more that he had in mind? So let's take a look first at how Jesus used it on the cross. Uh, you may be familiar with the fact that crucifixion was used by a number of cultures, but primarily the Roman culture, as a deterrent to crime because it was so painful and it took so long to die that if you, and they would line up along the roadways so that as you walked through the Roman Empire, you would see these people hanging on a cross and you go, maybe I should rethink that thing that I was going to do. And it was a humiliating death. It was an excruciating death. In fact, the word, the English word excruciating comes out of the Latin for 
out of, and then crucio, the cross. The pain is so bad that the only thing that you can think of as you try to describe how bad the pain is, it's, it's as though you were crucified. And when they would hang them on the cross, the pain and the position of the body was so bad that you could barely get your breath. In fact, most people died not from their wounds of being crucified, but by actually drowning because their lungs would slowly fill up with liquid because they could never get enough of a breath. And so they would actually drown while on the cross. That's how bad it was. So let's take a look at Matthew chapter 27, verse 45 first. It says, from the sixth hour, and there should be a slide for these. Yes. Oh, we got it. Good. I just can't see it there. That's fine. I'll trust you. From the sixth hour, which is about noon, until the ninth hour, which is 3 p.m., darkness came over all the land. So there was darkness for about three hours, beginning at the time when the sun should be shining its brightest, right? At noon. So from the time when the sun should be the most obvious, for three more hours, it's the darkest. There's just nothing that you can see. And then, we look at verse 46, about the ninth hour, which would be about three o'clock in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which is kind of a haunting question, especially then when it's on the lips of Jesus. Because it raises the question, why would God forsake Jesus, who is God, in the flesh? And why would Jesus quote these lines, unless it's out of the pain, and maybe something else that is expressed in Psalm 22 by David. So turn with me now to Psalm 22, and that's where we're going to spend most of our time this morning. Pastor Park said I could preach as long as I want, but you're leaving about 12.15, so we'll try and end at the same time. Verse 1 of Psalm 22, you should be able to find it, it'll also be on the screen for you. My L, my L, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from the words of my groaning, literally roaring. Oh, my L, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, and I am not silent. If you were here last time I preached, you know that when I'm in the Older Testament, I like to translate out of the English back into the Hebrew name for God that's being used in any given passage. Because the writers, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, could have used any number of names for God. But they choose one, and they do it for a reason. And El, you may remember, is, it means the strong God. The one who's got the power to do anything that's consistent with his character. And the reason I point that out in this passage is, David is looking at his circumstances and saying, in essence, it's not that you can't do anything about my circumstances. It is that you've not done anything about my circumstances. And I don't know about you, but when I'm in difficult circumstances, it is, it's almost harder knowing that God could step in. I mean, I would almost prefer a God who's somewhat limited. That sounds like blasphemy, I know, and it is. Uh, but, but that he just can't do it. Then that he can and chooses in his sovereignty, not to step in and take care of those circumstances. 
And that, I think, adds a whole other layer of pain to whatever it is that David is going through at this point. And I pointed out that the word groaning is literally translated roaring. Donald Williams, in his commentary, says, the pain is audible. Right? So this is not just an internal thing. This is something that is so bad that, that David cannot refrain from groaning about his situation. He prays by day and night, that's 24 hours a day, and doesn't see the answer to his prayer for deliverance. And as a result, he's exhausted, not only by the suffering, but by the sense of abandonment. Right? It's, it's hard enough, whatever circumstance he's in, but God doesn't seem to be anywhere nearby. And I don't know if you noticed in the second verse there, he says, O my El, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. So God is silent. And by night, and I am not silent. I mean, David is literally saying in this song, I'm not silent in this season, but you are. What, what is going on, David is saying? That I repeatedly come to you and pray for some kind of deliverance from this situation. I'm talking all the time, and I hear nothing from you, God. Even though you could. And then as David continues in this song, and get to verse 3, he flips from his own suffering to God's character. He says, yet, for those of you who know the language, that's a contrast, right? Yet, in spite of what I'm going through, you are enthroned as the Holy One. Right? The one who everything he does is absolutely right. Again, would you find that comforting? That what you're going through is part of that everything is absolutely right? How can a holy God not do something here? You are the praise of Israel. And you, our fathers, put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried, and you were saved. In you they trusted, and they were not disappointed. Now, I do think David is trying to remind himself of what he believes and what is true about God's character. But again, is that comforting? That David, in essence, is saying, I don't want to just focus on my own pain. Because I know historically, in the lives of my people Israel, when they cried out to you, you showed up. So what is it about me and my situation that I don't see you anywhere? Right? So there's, there's hanging on to that truth, but, but that truth doesn't help emotionally because his circumstances have not changed. And so while f moving his eyes from his own pain to Israel's deliverance, that's that's a great thing to go back to the truth, but, but it just seems to magnify his own pain. And we know this because he goes on in verse 6. But, in contrast to Israel, right, the Israel whom God has historically continued to deliver and deliver, but I am a worm and not a man, scorned by men and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in Yahweh. Notice the change of the name here. Because Yahweh is that covenant name of God. 
I will be to my people everything that I am. I am the promise-making and promise-keeping God. He trusted in that God of the covenant, that relational God. Let that God rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. But notice here, it's, he starts out his song saying, God, where are you? It feels like I am despised by you. He highlights in these verses of the song that it's actually the people around him who despise him as well. So not only is God not for him, but nobody else around him seems to be for him. If he trusts Yahweh, why is he suffering? And then once again, David shifts to God's character, to the truth he knows about God. He says, yet, you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth, I was cast upon you. From my mother's womb, you have been my strong one, my El. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near, and there's no one to help. As David goes through this song, he begins to realize, right, you've been faithful to Israel, but if I have to admit it, it's true. You have, from the moment of birth, been with me. It doesn't change my current circumstance, but it's true that you've always been there. And so he goes back to his own suffering in verse 12. Many bulls surround me. And he's going to use three animal imageries here. That's going to be important in a minute. He says, many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions tearing their prey open their mouths against me. I'm poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted away within me. And you know what happens when you lose heart, right? I mean, it just That imagery we still use in the English language to lose heart is just to give up, right? To feel abandoned. My heart is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. That's just a little chip of a pot. And it gets drier because the pot isn't being used to hold water or oil or anything else. So the clay dries out even more because it's just cast aside. It isn't connected to anything else. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men have encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and they cast lots for my clothing. Which then David goes into prayer. Verse 19. But, in contrast, you, O Yahweh, the one who is to his people everything that he is, the promise-making, promise-keeping God, you, Yahweh, be not far from me. O oh, my strength, come quickly to help me. Deliver my life from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lions. Save, literally you have saved, it's past tense there, from the horns of the wild oxen. Right? The three groupings of people who were against him, David says, let's not leave anything out here. I need deliverance from all this stuff that's going on in my life. And verse 21 is the transition moment in this lament song. Because he's been focused on his own pain and on God's faithfulness to Israel and his, 
and even God's faithfulness to him in other seasons of his life. But when he hits verse 21, the second half of verse 21, he, he throws it from an anticipating a deliverance to you have done this, which tells me he wrote the song after whatever was going on had gone on. And being inspired by the Holy Spirit, he wanted to put down what it was he had experienced during the darkest season of his life. He said it looked like a defeat, but it wasn't. It was actually a victory in that God delivered. And as a result of that, things were going to begin to happen that could have only happened because of God delivering him out of his pain and out of his burden. In fact, David gives us two of the results or the fruit that he saw anyway in his own experience from the suffering that he'd been going through. Look at verse 22. I will declare your, and the closest antecedent there is Yahweh, the promise-making, promise-keeping God, I will declare your name to my brothers. Because his first fruit of suffering is what he has then to share with the congregation, that is the people of God. In the congregation I will praise you. You who fear Yahweh, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. Why? For or because he, Yahweh, has not despised or disdained the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from the afflicted one, but he in fact has listened to the afflicted one's cry for help. It seemed like God wasn't there, but God had heard. All along, God had heard. That's important to David. I wasn't alone. It sure felt like I was alone, but I wasn't. In fact, God was there all the time. Verse 26, the poor will eat and be satisfied. They who seek Yahweh will praise him. May your hearts live forever. And the second fruit, besides telling the congregation, is that the whole world is going to hear about God's deliverance. That God took what looked like the darkest hour and turned it into a victory. As ironic as that may seem. Look at verse 27. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to Yahweh. Now for me, that, that's a, an interesting verse because Israel had this tendency to think we're God's chosen people, so this is all just about us. But throughout the Older Testament, God kept saying to Israel, no, 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 I blessed you to be a blessing. This is not for you to hold on to your precious truths. It's for you to live in them and then share them with the people around you who haven't heard yet. And he says, all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to Yahweh and all the families of all the nations, the Goy, the Goyim, the, the non-Jews, will bow down before him for dominion belongs to Yahweh and he rules the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive, posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about Adonai, the Lord above all lords, the king above all kings. They will proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, for he has done it. And in the Hebrew, that literally means it 
is finished, which ought to sound familiar if you've been in your Bibles, which brings us to the two words you're learning to love when I preach. So what? Because it means he's almost done. So what? What do we do with this? What are the implications? Well, this is where I want to come back to Jesus' use of that phrase, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The question I asked as we started our time together was, why had God forsaken Jesus on the cross? And I've suggested from the text of Psalm 22 that while David felt that at the beginning, that David had to acknowledge God had never forsaken him. That in fact, in David's darkest time, God's presence was still there. They were still face to face. So it is possible that not only was Jesus identifying with David's pain and this seeming loss of fellowship, but it could be that Jesus was actually pointing to his followers who were still standing at the foot of the cross to not lose sight of what was going on. You may not understand this now in this moment, so let me point you to the passage that will help you in this. Because if you've read all seven statements from the cross, I thirst, uh, why, why have you forsaken me, woman behold your son, etc., those are all very short statements. Why? As I explained earlier, you can't hardly get a breath on the cross. So Jesus is not going to quote all of Psalm 22 and then have a sermon about, hey, Pay attention to what David was saying in Psalm 22. What he's going to finally get out is the cry of David, which everybody who was familiar with the Hebrew songbook would have known, because it's a pretty distinct opening to a song, right? I, I doubt the worship team is going to get up very soon and sing, have us all start singing, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, right? It stands out. And so what Jesus, I think, was doing on the cross was saying to his followers gathered there at the foot of the cross, there's more going on here than you can see. So I think the real question is not, how could God forsake Jesus on the cross, but did God forsake Jesus on the cross? The gospel writers use four very clear, either direct citations, or in addition to that, a couple of... Uh, Images about like bones being out of joint and being thirsty and all that sort of thing from Psalm 22. And the psalm itself ends with the Hebrew words, it is finished. God has done it. It's over. And so for years I thought and was taught that on the cross God turned his face from Jesus because he couldn't look on sin and he made him sin who knew no sin. In fact, one of my current favorite songs, except for this line, says, The Father turned his face away. But as I read Psalm 22, the question is, did he? Did he turn his face away from David in this time that was difficult? In fact, I want to suggest to you that Psalm 22 actually points in the opposite direction of God abandoning him. And I picture God face to face with Jesus saying, this is what we decided in eternity past. This is how we bring to ourselves a multitude of people who don't deserve to be in relationship with us. 
But we knew the blood of goats and bulls could not cover their sin. And that the only way we could bring them back to ourselves once and for all, as the letter to the Hebrew Christians point, puts it, that there had to be a once for all sacrifice. And this is it. And some of you are thinking, but doesn't the Bible say that God's too pure to look on evil? That he, he can't see it, so if he looks at me, doesn't he have to turn his face away? Well, let's turn to Habakkuk, because that's the one place that phrase shows up. And Habakkuk, you remember, was a prophet of Israel. He was complaining about the behavior of his brothers and sister Israelites. And God said, okay, I'll send the Assyrians to take them into captivity. And Habakkuk said, whoa, 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 whoa. No, 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 you can't somebody, use somebody worse than us to judge us. And God basically says, I can do anything I want to do. But yeah, here's how it works. But look at chapter 1, verse 13. Because he's now talking about the Assyrians and how God can't use them. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? He had just admitted that Israel wasn't righteous, but he says at least they're more righteous than those folks. How can you do that? And as I mentioned last time in Psalm 32, that Hebrew poetry rhymes sound, not, I mean, yeah, it rhymes the thought, not the sound, right? Which is why it's easy to translate the Psalms into any language, because you're translating and rhyming the thought, either by contrast, or here's a little more information, or this is just like that. And so Habakkuk says you're too pure to look on evil, and if you stop there, that'd be one thing. But he goes on to explain what he means by that. You cannot tolerate wrong, right? Because if he can't look at sin, how could God see me before I knew Jesus? But he does see me. In fact, God has always seen me. So I want to suggest to you that God, in fact, did not turn his face away from the Son. That he looked on him and judged our sin on him right there. But I will admit, and I have a, there you go. Of course, there may be other interpretations. But I think that the reason Jesus quoted Psalm 22 was to tell his followers again, there's more going on here than you understand. And God has not abandoned me. You've got the other psalm that says that God would not abandon his loved one to decay, which is also out of the Psalms, right? He, he can't leave him alone. So the first so, so what is I don't think that God forsook him. And the second one is that things <clears throat> excuse me, are not always like they appear. And I want to march back through verse 24 of Psalm 22, because this for me is the linchpin, where David very clearly says, God has not despised or disdained the suffering of the afflicted one. By the way, which is a term used for Messiah in the Old Testament. Two, God has not hidden his face from the afflicted one. And three, God has listened to the afflicted one's cry. That even as God judged his, the sin that he had placed on his son, God did not abandon his son. Because this is what Jesus came to do. The other fascinating thing to me is in Isaiah 53, which is that great messianic psalm looking forward to the cross. In verse 3 of Isaiah 53, it says, He was despised and rejected. But by whom? By mankind. 
a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom, what? People hide their faces. He was despised, and who held him in low esteem? We did. We were rebellious from birth. We've all been born broken, crooked. There's not anyone that does righteous. No, not one. We're the ones that caused the sin that then Christ satisfied by giving himself in our place as our substitute. Again, it wasn't just for our benefit. He was our substitute. It should have been us. And if you read from Genesis to Revelation, you don't find the father rejecting his own children. And the third so what for me is the fruit of our suffering, because we're all in it. So let's go back just to Psalm 22, right? We have felt, maybe not quite to that extent, but some of you may have, have felt that abandonment. Where was God when this happened? How could God really be present in this circumstance? That we have a, the privilege of telling not only our congregation, those who are like-minded, but telling the world that God has never left me nor forsaken me, <clears throat> even when it seemed like he did. He was always there. The Apostle Paul makes it clear in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. God the Father made him who had no sin, Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, to be sin for us so that in him we, who are sinners, might become the righteousness of God. That's the good news. And when Jesus left his disciples in Matthew 28, he said, Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, as you're going, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I commanded you. And then look at that last phrase. And surely what? I am with you always. Not just when it seems like it. Not just when all the things you hope for come true and all the prayers get answered but I am with you always to the very end of the age. Let's pray. Father, your son willingly chose to become man, which made it then possible for him to die and also made it possible for him to bear our sins because he was the perfect man. There were none of his own sins he had to pay for. He did not even once live outside of your righteousness. And in taking our sins on himself, he offers to us the free gift of eternal life. Free to us, but at a great price to him. But Father, also, David's own cry in that season resonates with me. That there are times when it seems like you're nowhere to be seen that you have in fact abandoned. Father, may you draw us back to this text. And may David speak to us again as he hoped would be the result of his writing this song, that we as the congregation, the people of God, would be reminded of your faithfulness throughout the generations and to individuals, that you never leave us nor forsake us so we can boldly say, the Lord is my helper. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.